Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's going to need to be some time where we've got to catch up uh, as space always is. That It's weird because space feels like it's the cutting edge industry, but at the same time, it's got a lot of legacy, old technology and equipment built into it. So there's a gap that space often has to cover. Um, AI will allow a lot of space manufacturers to take a few jumps over some of those technical development hurdles that they have right now. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello there, podcasters. This week, we're starting a long look at the computer-based technology artificial intelligence, or AI, and the space industry. Many educators have come to hate the AI chatbot, ChatGPT. Now, that's the one that can write essays, but a Brookings Institution report says that in the past five years, the U.S. federal government has signed well north of a billion dollars worth of AI contracts, and of that, 87% of the dollar value of those contracts are with the Department of Defense. The report identifies just one company, AI Solutions, as having more than 10 contracts. And in fact, the company has a total of 66 agreements with NASA and the DOD. And if you haven't guessed it, yeah, AI Solutions works exclusively on space programs and it's been doing this for 25 years, well before the current space renaissance kicked off with hundreds of space startups. The report also says that government spending on AI is growing at a double digit rate. So there's the big dollar customer. And it's one that space companies and AI software developers eyeing the space market and some investors are definitely targeting. To unpack this, we have space economist George Pollan, space market analyst Gabrielle Deville, and Dick Wilkinson, who's a co-founder of a space cybersecurity company. But before we hear from them, I thought it best to get an idea of just what AI really is and where it came from. Yes, I know. You've heard the term AI, but if you're in any small way like me, and this is despite years of education and earned degrees, I recently came to the humbling conclusion that I really didn't get it, get it. And yet, my gut tells me that for the defense space sector, it's going to be critical for achieving decision-making advantage on the battlefield, no matter the domain. We can start gently with a definition from one of the fathers of AI, the legendary computer scientist John McCarthy, who wrote that AI is, quote, the science and engineering of making intelligent machines, especially intelligent computer programs, unquote. That puts a nice and simple bow on what's really a very powerful technology tool. So I enlisted Dan Brunsky to help me out. Dan has served as an Air Force space pro and an electromagnetic engineer and is now the chief technology officer and co-founder of the space company True Anomaly. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the downlink, Dan. Hey, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I really look forward to having you on the podcast because you are a defense space pro. And what I mean by that is that before you joined the commercial space sector, 
and you say it out loud and proud, you served as a space operations officer in the U.S. Air Force and as a space aggressor in the reserve. I'd love for our audience to get to know a bit more about your journey to becoming a CTO and a space sector and defense advocate. Dan? Sure. So my name is Dan Brunsky, and I am the CTO and a co-founder at True Anomaly. Um, so I've worked across several industries in my, my career. I, I started life in semiconductor and materials research. Did that for a couple of years. Um, I worked in oil and gas doing industrial automation. Uh, I spent some time on signal processing for nuclear counter proliferation activities at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And I also served 10 years active in reserve as a space operations officer in the US Air Force. And so I worked with uh, a variety of different systems. I worked with military communication satellites, um, electronic warfare systems. I've done cyber intrusion on space systems. Um, I've worked with applications of AI for defensive space control. I've worked with experimental satellites coming out of the Air Force Research Lab. And I spent some time developing operational test campaigns for uh, counter space systems. Um, so this time is really where I met all of my co-founders at True Anomaly. And this is where a lot of the ideas for the company that I helped start came from. Um, this idea of working with defensive counter space systems and working with rendezvous proximity operation systems and you know all the frustrations that that we had as operators with these uh, with these systems and kind of the lack of the existing industrial base to to really iterate and innovate on the on the solutions for the problems that we were having i've brought you onto the podcast because I found my own understanding of artificial intelligence and machine learning is, well, it comes up pretty short. And I bet that I'm not the only one who feels that way. So what is AI really? Like, really, really? I think it's important to look at the distinction of AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. You know, these concepts are, these words are often used together in the same sentence, um, sometimes synonymously. You'll often see it written as AI slash ML, but th they are distinct concepts. And so AI refers to the ability of machines to perform tasks that traditionally have required human intelligence. So this includes things like learning, um, but also problem solving, planning. It also involves things like expert systems. So just to dive into that a little bit. So an expert system is a system where a lot of knowledge has been programmed by someone explicitly in the form of, say, if and then statements. So if this thing happens, then do that. And then if this other thing happens, then do this other thing. Um, so AI encompasses all of those things. Machine learning is a subset of AI, which is the ability of a system to ingest some, some quantity of data and to develop models about that data on its own without being explicitly programmed as to do so, right? So then once the system has developed this model, you can provide it a set of inputs and it can generate outputs that ideally have some meaning to them. But who and what creates AI? I mean, humans had to like kick this off, right? Let's, uh, let's and, and where some... did they do this even? I mean, is this, just basically somebody behind a, a computer screen, you know, tapping away. I mean, how does this like get created? Well, let's look at some of the history here. So the, the concept of AI 
really some of the most, uh, the first successful implementations of AI were back in the 60s, and these were expert systems. The concepts for machine learning have been around since at least the 50s and potentially even earlier. But at the time, they were viewed with, you know, sort, as sort of these kind of trite curiosities because we just didn't have the computing power to really do the amount of information processing required to, to train these models. And it wasn't really until technology caught up, say, sometime around the 90s, when, when researchers started to realize that, that hey, mach machine learning can be a very useful tool to solve certain types of problems. And so really, AI machine learning was kind of in the realm of you know, the scientist and the researcher and the R&D. And over the last kind of two decades, right, as, as computing technology has really progressed, and we've seen an explosion in the availability of multi-core processors and graphics processing units that have thousands of cores, you know, available to the consumer and the prosumer and so on. We've seen AI and more importantly, machine learning move into the realm of the engineer and then the hobbyist and the student. And so really these days, anyone that has a computer and is just a little bit code savvy can leverage the power of computer vision models and um, classification algorithms and all kinds of things. It's just kind of an odd question, but you know, when you're, you're, you know, programming computers or even setting up websites, there are all these <clears> different languages. I mean, is there a, an actual AI language or are there AI languages to actually programming this? Probably the standard right now that most people use for machine learning work uh, is Python. Python programming language, for those that aren't familiar, is a scripted language. It's pretty easy to pick up, and there's a wealth of code out there that's already available. You know, there are, there are entire books written on this. There are entire classes that people take just on how do I develop AI systems using Python. Now, you must have heard that the Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base in California, that you know, it, it hosted a, a, a DARPA test that DARPA successfully used AI to fly an F-16. Now, that's a roughly $30 million fighting platform. Now, the press release says DARPA not only used AI to take off and land, but to conduct maneuver simulations, you know, actual sorties. Now, the point of this program is allegedly to develop human-machine collaborative dogfighting to get decision-making advantage in the air. And that's as far as I should really go in the air domain. But, you know, that should lead everyone who's listening to our conversation to realize that anything that is computerized for air power has got to go triple for space power, especially to achieve decision advantage, right? That's right. And... So the problem that DARPA had to deal with in that program is actually a, a really difficult problem. We'll get to space in a minute, but what DARPA had to deal with is something that is sometimes known as the sim to real problem. And so this is the concept of training a robotic system in a simulated environment and then bringing that experience into the real world. Now, when you train an agent in a simulation, a simulated environment, the only thing that it knows is what it saw in that simulated environment. And so you have to make sure that in your sim, you have programmed in all the realities of the world that you expect the agent to encounter. And this is really challenging. Um, there's a fine line between not having enough fidelity and adding so much that you waste time and money and effort and scope and all these things. So we have these same problems when it comes to space as well. But the space domain is challenging for its own reasons. We have radiation effects, you know, large temperature swings, vacuum, and so on. And so even if you take away all of those things, you still have to deal with the remote nature of space. 
the vast majority of space operations are conducted by unmanned robotic systems that communicate to a ground site over a command and telemetry link. Um, these links can be unreliable, they're intermittent, you have timeshare considerations, and so you have to share that link with other users, with other vehicles. These vehicles, you know, they tend to only have limited windows of visibility to the ground sites. So when you look at, say, low Earth orbit operations, um, you may only get a few minutes of contact time to send commands, to, to download data, and, and all these things. And so... And to give the actual spacecraft, you know, its its orders or or to give it commands, right, for it to change and do other tasks. So I just right. wanted to make that clear that you know the window has got a lot you know rammed into it. Right. There's a lot of things going on, and and the goal here for AI is to enable these complex mission operations during these periods of of limited to no contact. Um, we've seen NASA actually has employed AI on its Mars rovers in the form of computer vision systems to help navigate terrain, to process scientific data, right? Because the command links to Mars are sometimes, you know, up to a 30 minute round trip. So there's a lot of times where the rovers are not able to receive instructions from a human operator and they have to deal with these things on their own. When it comes to spacecraft, um, these kind of defensive systems that we're, that we're looking at building, uh, we want to do very similar things, right? We want to allow them to navigate in relative proximity to other objects safely and effectively during periods where we just we're not we're not available to tell them what to do. What if they run into something that they haven't actually been programmed to recognize that it's not actually in their I, I guess library of knowledge? Yeah, that's that's actually so that's actually a, a challenging problem. AI tend to be programmed to operate within sort of a, a narrow boundary of functions, right? They they really only recognize what they've been trained for. And when you develop these machine learning models, there's this concept of generalization, right? You want your models to be able to generalize as much as possible. And what that means is that they can recognize things that weren't explicitly included in the training set, but that has its limits. And so oftentimes when you expose AI to things that they're wholly unfamiliar with, they tend to fail miserably. And so when it comes to uh, space systems, right, this, this is a problem and this is generally why we've been so risk adverse to employing AI in these kinds of systems, because unlike other domains, when there's a problem in space, we can't just send a person out there, except for, you know, very specific circumstances. Uh, we can't go retrieve the systems. We can't repair them easily. We can't refuel them. And because of high orbital velocities, right, any collisions or other debris cause could be very damaging to not just that spacecraft, but a lot of other spacecraft in the environment. And because things are traveling so fast, I, I, you know, imagine that, I mean, for decision, you know, advantage, whether it be in conflict type situation or, or just, you know, in terms of avoiding debris from, you know, Russia's latest ASAT test. I mean, those decisions have to be made. A split second, you know, makes it kind of mild, but, you know, we're talking like tenths of a second. Is AI able to function at those kinds of speeds and make those kind of decisions? It can, and and really getting getting inside the uh, the OODA loop, um, to use a reference from John Boyd, is also a goal of AI um, and, to be able and, to make decisions faster. And just for a quick second, explain John Boyd's OODA loop for me. So the OODA loop is the observe, orient, decide, and act loop. It's it's a framework for how you take observations in from the environment, you orient yourself to the problem, you decide what to do, 
and then you act on it. And, and it's a loop, right? So once you act, you observe how the battle space changes, and then you continue the cycle. Could you give us an example of how AI is currently being used by the Department of Defense in space? Currently, right now, most of the uses of AI find themselves on the ground systems doing data processing. I've had personal experience with, with the use of AI for anomaly detection on spacecraft. Um, spacecraft are you know, complicated assemblies. They have hundreds of various sensors, temperature sensors, voltage sensors, momentum sensors, all these kinds of things. And there is a ton of data coming down to an operator. And so an operator's task on a day-to-day -day basis is to look at all this data and determine, is the satellite healthy? Is it still functioning? And sometimes this, uh, this data can start trending in the wrong way. And we believe that we can apply AI to help. So first to learn what normal satellite operations look like, and then to flag an operator when things start trending in the wrong direction before they get totally out of hand. So that's one application. Uh, AI probably tends to find its largest use right now when it comes to geospatial intelligence. So there's a, a wealth of data coming down from Earth, Earth sensing satellites. And AI is being used to help classify terrain, to look at traffic patterns, to look at you know fire patterns and natural disasters and all kinds of things, to, to try to make predictions about where these things are going to happen and how they how they propagate over the landscape over time. Now, admittedly, the next question is a bit of a tease for next week's episode when I interview your co-founder and CEO, Evan Rogers. But in a nutshell, like if you were meeting an investor that knows something about defense, but nothing about AI and space, how do you at True Anomaly employ AI? And why is this important for the U.S. Space Force? The long term for AI at True Anomaly is to be able to operate formations of satellites completely autonomously. So we could provide a formation goal. We could say, go inspect that satellite go help out with anomaly resolution and the formation goes. Um, this is a very challenging problem and we're a long way from achieving that. What we're doing with AI right now at True Anomaly is kind of the first step towards solving that problem. And so we're looking at AI as more of a decision support tool. We have a, a multi-agent training framework where we have pairs of satellites that can fly out in a high fidelity simulation environment and we can give them a goal, say, I want the friendly satellite to image the dead satellite or the other satellite, and I don't want it to be imaged back. And I want it to respect lighting constraints from Earth, Moon, and Sun. I want it to use a, you know, the least amount of fuel possible and so on. And so we play out these engagements and we look at how does the AI come up with ways to solve this problem? And a lot of times you find that AI can come up with solutions after a very a large number of runs, say billions of runs, much quicker than a human operator can come up with, and sometimes sometimes very unique solutions that maybe a human wouldn't have thought of. Now, if you were to look, let's say five years out, because technology development is just so fast, what do you see for AI and space operations? Technology in space has a lot of catch up to do with technology in the ground. Um, you see AI being employed in you know, autonomous drones and autonomous automobiles and things like that. The problem with space is because of the harsh environment, it's been difficult to get the computing power necessary to really run these models and to train them on orbit. Um, 
we're starting to see some very powerful and capable processors in the market. Um, and so what I see in five years is really, you know, where AI right now currently mostly exists on the ground, we, I see a lot of that moving actually on orbit into this sort of edge computing mode. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. Now, to get technology that's on the ground up to and on orbit, you need a demand signal and know how to turn on the money spigot. And that means understanding the myriad of important ways that AI is used and can be used in space operations today and in the future. Here's my conversation with George, Gabriel, and Dick. Hello, welcome to the downlink, Gabriel and Dick. And welcome back, George. Thanks for having me back. Before we get started, let's do some introductions. All of you have such deep but very different backgrounds in the space and technology industries. George, you know how this goes. So why don't you start? Sure. My name is George Pullen. I'm really happy to be back. I am the chief space economist for Milky Way Economy. We are a think tank that invests, educates, and advises space businesses, technologists, and financiers. We believe the space economy is going to be the fifth industrial revolution. And Dick, what about you? Hi, Laura. Um, nice to meet you and your listeners. My name is Dick Wilkinson. I'm the chief technology officer of a company that uh, we've co-founded called Proof Labs with my partner, Rick Aguilar. Um, we are focused on space technology and cybersecurity. So we would like to deliver cybersecurity services and technologies that can make the space sector safer for the commercial and government operators that need to use it. And Gabriel? Hi, Laura. Thanks for uh, having us. Um, my name is uh, Gabriel Deville. I'm a consultant for Euroconsult, which is a uh, consultancy firm focused on the space sector with uh, 40 years of experience now. We um, focus on all space applications and uh, actors uh, upstream, midstream and downstream of the value chain. I personally specialize in um, upstream aspects of the value chain, so satellite and launcher uh, production mainly. Now, the audience has just heard Dan's explanation of just what AI is and how it's used in defense and commercial scenarios, but I'm getting the sense that it's still not very well understood by the space industry writ large. Over the past several weeks and at various conferences, I've had some uh, in AI tell me that many customers view AI as something like an add-on or like an app that you can simply download onto your smartphone. And that it's understood even less by those who want to invest in companies that are developing a space play. So I'd like to ask you, Gabriel, how mature is AI in the space industry? And how aware are investors of AI? You know, just like what can it do for space operations on orbit and even on the ground? So um, calling it uh, a mere add-on is uh, quite uh, reductive, I must say, although it is true that its uh, uh, potential is uh, not yet um, unleashed, uh, if, if you will. Um, so just to, to take a starting point, um, I hope uh, Dan would agree with me on this, but um, the whole point of AI, if you uh, boil it down, is that it allows you to rapidly analyze vast amounts of data, right? So it allows you to make 
um, sense and uh, find some sense in the uh, mentative data, uh, find meaningful trends to, you know, um, help decision making or take decisions uh, directly, maybe. Um, now, in the space uh, sector, this has many potential applications, whether uh, so, so some are already um, existing, right, but most of them are still potential. Uh, you have applications upstream of the value chain, so for industrial activities and production, midstream of the value chain, so in satellite operations, and also downstream for uh, satellite uh, data analysis and uh, service production. Now, when you ask someone what is the potential of AI for the space sector, what comes to the mind, first of all, is satellite imagery analysis, right? So um, what we call uh, computer vision. So that's the AI algorithm looking at uh, trends in uh, imagery or uh, space data from remote sensing payloads. So think about, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, optical or radar imagery. And um, uh, the algorithm is looking for uh, trends such as shapes, colors, forms, angles, and this allows it to uh, detect change. And this is really important um, because detecting change paves the way for many applications, whether it's you know monitoring the um, the displacement of enemy uh, weaponry, or whether it's uh, optimizing your transportation routes by analyzing the density of traffic on roads, or whether it's monitoring climate change, or um, uh, or investing in a company, or for other insurance-related applications, for instance. But but there are other functionalities for AI which are less well known when you move up the value chain um, in satellite operations. So, for instance, for choosing a for fleet management, when you have a, 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 a constellation of many thousands of satellites um, and you want to optimize the uh, trajectory and the coverage of each uh, one of those satellites or for the um, optimizing of a, a spacecraft trajectory and choosing the most optimal and safe trajectory, or for uh, environment uh, management on long-term crewed space travels. And finally, when you move even um, upper in the value chain and you get into satellite production and industrial activities, then you have uh, more applications, um, especially in the field of uh, quality control, because quality control enables you to um, vast uh, data and AI empowered quality control enables you to reduce, reduce your um, many of your fixed costs in your factory. But anyway, I can elaborate on, um, on this uh, later on. Um, one thing I would like to stress, and I I, I, um, I think George would maybe um, agree with this, is that AI by itself is blind. Uh, the whole point of AI is uh, that you have to feed it large amounts of data, which brings the question of where do you get your data? Um, I'm, I believe there are two main answers to this. The first is well, you need to uh, expand and spread your network of sensors in your factory, in your spacecraft, in your launch base. So you need to expand a network of IoT, an IoT network. And the second answer is that you need to um, prepare for a digital thread. So the sharing of data between all the different segments of your value creation from prototyping to um, testing to launching. to, And uh, this increases the amount of available data and the diversity of available data. And this is absolutely um, vital for uh, AI, including in the space sector. So uh, I, I actually, uh, Gabriel, I appreciate that you brought that up and uh, you mentioned quality control. Um, my company, Proof Labs, is focused on 
delivering a forensics uh, service to the manufacturing and um, supply chain of space components. So we would like to use, you know, uh, special techniques in the lab to be able to verify the quality of the components before they're integrated into the spacecraft. And we're going to be using machine learning and AI techniques that will help us improve, like you said, our coherent change detection. So as we take imagery of the different components that go in there, we can notice changes that uh, reflect either a poor quality or miss, you know, incorrectly created pieces of equipment. So that you're you're absolutely right, and we're ready to provide that service within the next couple of months to the space industry. So uh, that I, we see that as an important uh, part of this sector. Just to just to jump in there because there's a there's a couple alphabet soups there, and I just want to do like the professor pulling hat real quick. Um, so you know AI that's artificial intelligence, ML that's machine learning. Um, we also talk about deep learning or DL or neural networks. Okay, but for the listener please just think about artificial intelligence as this category of technology tools. And depending on how much data you're feeding it and how you're training that data, as Gabrielle mentioned, and where it's coming from, that's what differentiates it between these layers. We don't really have to get into the weeds there, but when you hear these terms, know that they're not interchangeable, but they're part of that larger toolkit. That actually really brings me to, you know, following up on the first question, which is, you know, how aware are investors of AI, as in, you know, what it can do for space operations, or when they look at a company, whether it be an AI company with a space play, or whether it be, you know, a, a space company that's saying, hey, we are using AI for this. I mean, do investors really understand how that actually plays into the strength of the parts of a company? It's been my experience that companies right now have adopted the slogan that data is the new oil and oil is, of course, the new gold. And they understand that companies that are leaning in to that trend are going to have advantage. And that's true whether they are space or in other industries. So I think there's an awareness of that. I think the translation, though, is what are they doing with their data? Because raw data is messy. Raw data doesn't by itself have value. It is what you gain from that data that has the value, it's the insights and the actions that lets you take to make profits for your company um, or deliver on missions for your customers. So I think that's what investors are looking at. It is something that's in a lot of decks right now about how they're data-centric or data-focused. But in terms of how they're turning that data into information, I still think that's uh, yet to be determined for everybody. And Dick, you're coming from a very special viewpoint, that of a co-founder of a cybersecurity firm focused on space systems. You know, what are you seeing? Are more of your customers employing AI? Are you actually seeing an uptick in your AI business? You know, who's in that market landscape? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say the the there's the wonder of are we using a buzzword that's not really appropriate for the technology we're deploying? Or are we really deploying AI or machine learning technology? And so as a company, you have to be, you have to tread that line and make sure that when you're talking to investors, if you use those terms, you need to be able to technically back up what you're talking about. It's going to be pretty obvious if you're just trying to rub this sort of AI uh, icing on top of the cake. Everybody's going to know that, right? Um, it won't take, you know, any investor who's heard a couple of pitches is going to know pretty quickly um, whether or not you're really using that or if you're just trying to chase a buzzword. So I'll, I'll let any other 
uh, co-founders out there, just give you that heads up. If you want to put it on your slides, it better be a legitimate part of your tools because <laughs> you will get called out. Um, but yes, in the sector, absolutely. Uh, just like any other technical industry right now that's starting to realize the power of what these tools can do, the customers, um, you know, some of them don't know what they don't know. And so they don't realize what it can bring to them. And that's that's our job as the vendor and as the service provider to figure out ways to, you know, if it creates efficiency for us, it creates efficiency for the customer. But as far as the deployment and, you know, we're on that kind of manufacturing and spacecraft side of the house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's going to need to be some time where we've got to catch up uh, as space always is. That It's weird because space feels like it's the cutting edge industry, but at the same time, it's got a lot of legacy, old technology and equipment built into it. So there's a gap that space often has to cover. Um, AI will allow a lot of space manufacturers to take a few jumps over some of those technical development hurdles that they have right now. And, you know, for us as Proof Labs, we just recently submitted a, a grant proposal to the federal government to use an AI model that exists now that can help with spacecraft um, age and breakdown and prediction of, you know, quality of products. We're going to attempt to use some of that same technique to identify cyber attacks in the space um, arena. And so, you know, that is just, again, a, a taking an application where it already is proven and then shifting it left or right just a little bit to your own problem set. And I think that that can happen all over the space sector, not just in cybersecurity. If I can illustrate uh, with an example um, what um, what Dick is saying about uh, how AI can help with reducing development costs and uh, uh, reducing production time, uh, we have uh, one example of um, a... Um, a, uh, the manufacturing of a, a launcher, a um, hydrogen-powered uh, launcher, which uh, as part of the quality control, once uh, the um, fuel tanks are built, well, the fuel tanks need to be checked for for leaks, right? For for potential leaks, so uh, the fuel tank is must be introduced into a um, leakage uh, verification station, which is basically a, a very large. Um, many uh, dozens of meters long uh, pool of liquid uh, nitrogen. And you're using this huge piece of hardware for just a few tanks per year, right? Because large legacy launchers, if you're not SpaceX, you're just making maybe five to 10 per year. So this is a huge fixed cost, um, which you're not amortizing with many, um, with a lot of, uh, you know, with a large volume. And um, this uh, this uh, manufacturer was uh, stepping onto a new uh, quality control process, whereby instead of having this large uh, pool of uh, nitrogen, he would resort to a um, set of sensors collecting thousands of parameters on the surface of the, the fuel tank, which would be analyzed by a AI, which would uh, detect, you know, um, leaks and, and deficiencies uh, there and uh, therefore uh, could remove this huge um, fixed cost uh, of uh, quality control. So, yeah, just uh, one uh, one illustration among, among many. Uh... I think another good example is the firms that are looking at using AI or ML tools for telemetry analysis. Um, obviously, satellite health is is huge, uh, particularly as you get into the larger, more exquisite satellites. Uh, they're very expensive to replace. And so that information that's coming in from those thousands of sensors, you can have systems right now of training data that allow us to know, given inputs, 
1 through 999, this is likely to be what happens. So we need to make some adjustments right now to prevent that failure. And so telemetry analysis um, and the types of training data that's being used right now for ML and AI techniques to improve upon the health of satellite systems, I think that's really um, an interesting area of study and interesting area of development for companies. I think the other one is, of course, um, something we've always talked about before, which is remote sensing data. So, you know, it's a diff, like, you know, has that truck moved? Okay, not today. Did it move yesterday? Oh, did it move the same way as it did yesterday again today? Oh, that's a route that truck is taking. Um, that's great for supply chain analysis. It's also great for other things. We don't have to say those out loud. Um, but, but there's oh, a lot come of- come on, um... you can say it out loud. I mean, I just heard somebody from Maxar at a conference yesterday basically say they knew exactly when, you know, Russia began its invasion and they sent that data up the chain and out to their customer base, which happens to be at least 4,000 uh, or possibly more customers within the defense uh, sector, but, you know, both government and in the private sector, as well as to Ukraine saying, hey, this thing is kicking off. You better get ready. So it's okay. You know, you could say some of these things in the open source. They're already in the open source. Anyway, George, you know that I've asked you specifically to join this episode because among your many talents, you also have a passion for the fifth industrial revolution. And that, my friend, makes you a futurist. But before we get to the future, what do you think is the most important aspect of AI and space operations that investors and customers need to understand, but perhaps don't yet? Great question. I think that right now we can see that the focus of the money, and of course I'm an economist, I'm going to give you a money answer. The, the focus of all the money right now is around OSAM and ISAM. I will define those terms. This is uh, building things in space and moving them around. Okay. We use different acronyms, but that's what they mean. And so when we're building things in space and moving them around, what becomes really important is optimization of that mobility and optimization of those maneuvers. Because guess what? It costs to move in space. Moving in space isn't free unless you're going in the same direction <laughs> as everything else with the same direction you've been going in, right? Just a little physics 101 there. Um, and so optimization is important. So if not, if you need to change your direction, that means you need to expend fuel. And yep. being refueled yep. right now on orbit really hasn't been proven out. Correct. So yeah, you're sort of stuck with the fuel that you've got on board. Therefore, optimizing how you use that fuel would be kind of important. Correct. And and I think that's where we see the investment dollars right now in the interest. It's in the OSAM, ISAM, and that means maneuverability and mobility. And what that means is that you want to have optimization because you today can't refuel. Now, maybe soon you can, but today you cannot. And so that's where the focus is. And so that type of optimization situation, that's an excellent fit for an AI tool. It's an excellent fit to say, how do I optimize this movement? Um, and I think the next part of it, uh, if I could be optimistic, maybe, uh, so this is maybe not the investor hat, but optimistic is optimizing algorithms around how we collect space junk, how we collect space debris. Uh, this is another data set that is perfectly suited for an AI to handle and help us solve. I would um, I would agree uh, with um, with George on the notion of optimization. That's a very very interesting concept for AI. It's um, even more relevant when you're thinking about I think a a constellation as I was saying earlier of 
several hundreds, several thousands of satellites, each with their own uh, trajectory, um, inclination, their own orbital parameters, and you want to optimize the um, coverage of each one of them, and you want to avoid collisions, etc. And this is a, a very large number of uh, parameters that an AI is 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 the best fit to uh, to manage. But uh, optimization, so this applies for constellation management. It can also apply for uh, space situational situational awareness. Uh, software, you know, same thing, you're tracking uh, thousands, if not dozens of thousands of uh, very small objects, and you're trying to predict their trajectories and predict uh, potential collision events with, uh, you know, um, uh, functional uh, satellites. Another example, which um, is maybe less mainstream, is about um, the optimization of beam allocation on a reconfigurable communication satellites. So um, nowadays, communication satellites have an a growing number of, of, of beams, right, which are directed on various points on, on Earth. And satellite operators still have a um, uh, important um, amount of, uh, of uh, operation expenditure in uh, human intervention to manage those beams and allocate those beams. And now you're having uh, with the arrival of uh, high throughput satellites and uh, reconfigurable satellites which have many beams and which need to um, move them really fast you're finding yourself with satellites which have maybe over 200 separate beams and which need to reconfigure them on a milliseconds basis and this is when um, AI uh, can kick in and, and, and make some uh, serious optimizations and important uh, cost savings for the satellite operators hey you guys you did hear about DARPA's AI F-16 test, right? I mean, what do you think? Is this the end of Maverick? <laughs> uh, you know, Laura, yeah, I, I did hear about this. And uh, first I'll say I'm impressed. Um, the team that put that together and the description of the timeline in just a couple of years to go from uh, simulated models to a live flight, that's that's very impressive. And what I think that highlights for us is is what it can do in the space industry as well uh, that you can take a, a problem and in a, what would be considered a fairly short amount of time, one to two years from an engineering perspective, and really gain a lot of ground in solving that problem. So in that F-16 uh, example, they, you know, that development team skipped over what I think would have been uh, the entire uh, middle process of trying to remote control fly that aircraft with uh, like a human supervised uh, model. And it sounds like they really just got straight to it and flew it. So they probably took months or years out of their engineering pipeline to be able to produce that product. Uh, that can be applied in any other industry or any other sector again. So for us, we understand that being able to bring AI and ML algorithms to apply to space problems, um, we're just going to keep looking for places to shine that flashlight, right? We're going to keep looking for opportunities to bring that technology and apply it and see what it can do for that new problem set that exists for space. I think that story also reveals something else, which is the way our thinking is sometimes siloed. Um, I'm sure it was a great program. I'm sure it was a, a fantastic result. Obviously, they they skipped one of their phases in development. They were doing so well. But what we've done is we've tried to add AI into a system that's already 30 plus million dollars and has a pilot that's two plus million dollars trained. Um, when really we should think about well, what would our adversaries do? Well, our adversaries will enable swarms that learn based on algorithms that we've developed 
based on bees patterns and grasshopper patterns. And then that swarm of little drones is just going to fly into that really exquisite aircraft. And that swarm of drones costs us a few thousand. And so we took out your multi-million dollar aircraft. That's that's what I think about because AI can also level set a lot of other people's tools. And so just because we put AI on something really expensive doesn't mean it's better. We could also look at putting AI on things that are actually really cheap, affordable, and we can put up rapidly. That's an also a great strategy. Now, I don't know how that extends to space and nor will I hypothesize, but I can definitely see how it works here on the ground, how it works in the air, and definitely even for naval, right? You can, you've can you seen these autonomous naval vehicles that have washed up on shore in different places. The same thing, when you have automation applied to their decision-making and they can move as swarms, if that slows down fleet movements by a few hours or a few days, that can make a big difference in an, an adversarial interaction. And so I I think about that and I, I hope that as we're looking at AI, we're not just looking at attaching it to really expensive pieces of hardware machinery. We're also looking at other options that are perhaps more affordable, rapid and can move in swarms. And George, what do you see in your crystal ball? I mean, does AI actually get us to the fifth industrial revolution? Quick answer, yes. Uh, so one of the four pillars of the fourth industrial revolution is uh, big data and the tools that we will develop to harness the information that's in big data. And so AI is definitely one of those tools. Um, I think about some of the recent presentations I had seen at Spacecom, um, a company, Picnic Robotics, for example, uh, their expertise has been in warehouse robots and those those cool robots you see, you know, picking fruits and vegetables. And now they're applying these to space systems and space robots. And so they don't they don't build the robot arms themselves, but they build that that extra layer of software and AI that lets them move efficiently and autonomously. That's important. And I think that's the type of stuff we're going to see as we transition from the current fourth into the fifth industrial revolution. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, you, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavus Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.